You're listening to Underground History, a collaboration between JPR and the Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology, or SULA. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and each month, sometimes more, we take a deep dive into little-known aspects of history in Oregon and beyond. Today, I am joined by author Christina Ward to talk about her new book, Holy Food, How Cults, Communes, and Religious Movements Influenced What We Eat in American History. Christina, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm always excited to talk about food and religion. And I'm always excited to read about it. And I was so fascinated like with this book because it really drove home the ways in which my life, and I'm assuming most of the people who read this, have really bumped up against a lot of these groups. I ate so much Krishna food in my youth, and the bean pie at the Black Muslim Bakery in Oakland was like a legendary favorite of mine. And just this week, we made something out of our very well-used copy of the Farm Cookbook. So I went into this thinking it would be a little bit more esoteric, but in fact, it's like, you know, so much of the history of my life. Um, and I want to start out with kind of something you mentioned in the introduction, and that's this, I, this the way that you um, kind of present um, this idea of identity and how it's constructed and how food plays a role in that. And that's really one of the central tensions in archaeology because we're always trying to use material culture, sometimes as food, sometimes as other things, to kind of ask these big questions about what it all means. And, uh, you know, within, you know, my discipline, there's kind of two camps. And one group would say that the more normative behavior is what it all means. And then there's those who would say that um, those who are on the margins or the outliers are really what it all means. And I think I see this tension, you know, kind of in this, like what's more American, apple pie or bean pie? And of course, that's a false choice, you know, not something you can answer. But I, I wanted you to kind of talk a little bit about that tension and how it played out in this book, which is an American history and not one that people would expect. Um, I think the tension could also be described as nuance. And I think Americans many times are, we're bad at nuance, where we don't hold those two differing tensioned ideas together. Like you can have a favorite apple pie and a favorite bean pie, and they can both be wholly American, which they are. It doesn't have to be a binary either or. And so it goes into the idea of food and authenticity and cultural appropriation and who has the right to cook a different way or to talk about a specific recipe or food way. And within that tension, I think, is that's where America is. That's where we are. We are always bumping up against something that is a boundary, a frontier. And just as you you spoke about, about whether it's the normative mainstream or the marginal outliers, it's both. It's often the outliers and the marginalized communities that are um, the the pointy front of the wedge going through the frontier, but the mainstream normative always comes rushing right behind it. So it's very nuanced. Yeah, and I I love that too because it it's so true. Like people tend to want things really like bite size, easy to consume. You know, whether it's history or politics or whatever these days, we really see that. And it's a lot harder to take the time to really explore that nuance. And so, um, you know, and and food is not always one of the ways that people do that. For example, one of the things that I was so fascinated with is um, this idea that spice or the lack of spice is even rooted in these religious agendas. So you wrote about the Seventh-day Adventists leaning in on towards like bland foods and avoiding spicy foods as a rejection of Catholicism, since spicy foods are equated with countries with large 
Catholic populations. And this, I mean, in my mind, this, um, you know, you can think about parts in the the U.S. where food tends to be blander. I'm from the West Coast. Uh, My in-laws are in the Midwest where you are. And, you know, casseroles and something were, were things that were really new to me. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about that, the way that even like the tastes of foods and the spices we use um, aren't just about like access and what grows locally. There's all these other factors of the way they're rejected or accepted. Well, food especially is we we impart meaning onto it. So we're placing some of our values and our beliefs, whether right or wrong, onto the food we're eating or judging other people and what they're eating. And it goes to that idea of spice, of what is um, going to excite the systems. And that was a very old kind of pre-sciencey, you know, proto-sciencey, pseudo-sciencey idea that somehow spices would um, excite the sexual urges. And of course, Protestantism, um, then later all the American offshoots, which were very fundamentalist and very restrictive in, in what was allowed behavior. And of course, this idea of any kind of sexuality was not something that was encouraged. So of course, we wanted to eat food that would discourage that kind of uh, behavior. And it goes so far as then to actual foods that were, you know, essentially uh, in prisons, in armies, um, old folklore in the early 20th century, that saltpeter was added to food. It was kind of a mineral additive, and it was made to essentially decrease the sexual drive. So these ideas that get put onto the food are often rooted in um, a small, teeny, tiny, factual, actual belief. And then it gets magnified and then culturally gets put forward. And we then, after a couple generations, lose the origination. So when you think about casseroles and plain food and more common food, that's really um, a food way and a culture that comes from people who, you know, four or five generations back were part of the German separatists movements that came to the Midwest. That's Mennonites and the Amish and the Hutterites. And then, of course, then later, Latter-day Saints and Mormons. All of those groups have a cultural history in um, the pietism and the German separatist movements. Yeah, and I don't mean to throw any shade on casseroles. I know they can be very delicious. I just, you know, growing up in California, like the only casserole I'd ever really had was like lasagna, which, you know, so when I went to the Indiana, I was like, whoa, this is a thing. Um, but yeah, and that kind of gets at another question. You know, again, wearing my archaeology hat, we spend a lot of time thinking about food, but it's really deconstructed as ingredients. So we don't always have the luxury to like know how it made its way to the table or, or you know, or why. Um, and we do try to answer some of these nuanced questions with the evidence we have. So meat cuts can reference economic scales. We've talked a lot about this on other um, episodes on the show. So steak versus stew meat. And, you know, you can recognize ethnicity and sometimes tradition in this. But, you know, when looking through this lens, you can really see all these other factors, you know, like this, um, you know, this power, I guess, um, coercive control and self-sacrifice, you know, avoiding certain things for these larger beliefs. And it's not always a practical solution. And that's a good reminder for us because a lot of times, again, archaeologists assume they ate what's available. So, you know, if it's in their diet, it's it's local. So, you know, you talk about some of the ways that these um, ideas originate, but can you, you know, maybe give us a couple other examples about where do these come from? Like, where do people start, um, like vegetarianism or stuff like that? Like, where do those ideas originate from? Well, 
people take inspiration from so many different kind of holy books. Um, Cuisines inspired by more Eastern traditions. Um, you mentioned earlier the Hare Krishnas. Uh, they have traditions that in what's called Hinduism and Jainism, and then later Sikhism. And if you read their kind of spiritual texts, you'll see a concept called ahisma, which again, my apologies for my bad pronunciation, um, but it's a concept of doing no harm, doing no harm to any living thing. And of course, that means animals. And so many of the cultures and the cuisines um, in that area of the world are vegetarian. And when those ideas and those spiritual beliefs come to the United States, they bring some of that cultural part with them, which is the idea of vegetarianism. At the same time, there are other groups that are finding inspiration in different holy books. Um, there's some uh, branches of Judaism that are vegetarian and have interpreted the book or to that end. There are uh, many Christian groups, you know, Christian-based groups that look to uh, the Scripture, New Testament and Old Testament, and find that, again, inspiration to not eat meat specifically. And sometimes that interpretation is where things go a little bit squiffy for people, because it's one person interpreting like a set of words, and someone else could have a different interpretation of that. And within that, tension then becomes a schism and becomes maybe a new group. Um, and that is how all of these new religious groups start propagating, and how they take different elements of food traditions with them and then create their own. Yeah, that's so interesting. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. And today I'm your host, Chelsea Rose. And today I'm speaking with author Christina Ward about the ways in which cults, communes, and religious movements have influenced what we eat. So, you know, you mentioned um, Judaism with the vegetarianism. And one of my, um, like, kind of bucket list archaeological sites is this 19th century uh, Jewish utopian community just north of me in southern Oregon called New Odessa. And it was home to vegetarian lumberjacks. And, of course, there's no community there today. But I've always been like, oh, my gosh, I want to learn more about them. But it's so interesting because, um, you know, you talk about this long history of, of things like vegetarianism. But in the U.S., it's really associated with the hippies of the 20th century. And people have kind of lost this connection to the antecedents or the, the you know, where it comes from and all the different groups that practice it. And, you know, why do you think that is? And also a kind of a side question is, is there a big distinction between vegetarianism and veganism in, in these kind of worlds? Um, yes and no. I'll, I'll answer backwards. And in the modern sense, in the past like couple of decades, there is a much wider divide between ideas of veganism and vegetarianism. But if we take that back to 20th century, they're kind of equated as the same. There were small differentials between who was going to eat, you know, um, milks, dairy products, or, you know, honeys, uh, something animal-derived. There wasn't as much of a designation. That's more of a modern um, idea. Though, there were groups that were eating a nearly vegan diet. And that's kind of what we were talking about at the middle, is that the, the margin, the folks right at the margin are leading the way and they kind of keep working on things, and then the mainstream follows. But in the 20th century, it really amped up. And so this idea, we think about vegetarianism and hippieism, but it, and again, it goes back further. But what changed in the 20th century is the industrialization of printing and the access to printing presses. And that allowed a lot of these new groups in the early 1900s to start publishing cookbooks. 
And so those cookbooks were a way to spread the message to maybe even people who weren't interested in the religion part of it, but were very interested in the food part of it. And it helped spread. By the time we get to you know, the 1960s and 70s, there's a boon of cookbooks that are published by different groups that could be considered cults, definitely published by communes, but also people who are outside, who are secular, who are now interested in that type of food and that type of cuisine, who then start developing recipes and publishing cookbooks. And so it's it's a very messy, messy kind of history in so much that everything affects everything else. And everyone is looking at what everybody else is doing and then interpreting it their own way. Yeah, I love that. And I mentioned earlier the farm cookbook or my edition is the new farm cookbook is, you know, there's like pages mission and I've used it so much. I was vegan for a long time. But, you know, it is like take 10 pounds of margarine. Like it's so margarine heavy. And I love one of the things about this book is you have over 75 recipes, but you've kind of updated them. You know, we all nobody really wants to eat tons of margarine anymore and nobody has to make tofu from scratch anymore. I remember um, when I was vegan in the 90s having to make my own soy milk. And then you have the pulp and we would make sausage in an old like tin can and like steam it or something, you know, like old school. Um, but it's it's interesting how mainstream all these ideas have been. And, and I, you know, in the book, you talk a little bit about how the Seventh, Seventh Day Adventists and some of these groups really have kind of gone so mainstream that they're almost invisible that the like um, the cultural impact that they have today and the presence, you know, we don't see it. They're not outliers anymore. They've become the norm. And, and that's the way of both cuisine and religious belief, is groups that were considered marginalized or pretty extreme in their beliefs. What happens over time after a few generations is either the group grows and becomes mainstream, and maybe some of their ideas get smoothed out a little bit, not as, not as uh, vehement in what their beliefs are. Belief, core beliefs are the same, but they're not maybe proselytizing as much, or they're not as active, um, and it becomes accepted and mainstream. Or what happens is some of the groups, especially the ones that are high-control groups, um, they tend to flame out, and they tend to push away any new recruits or members, and they tend to just literally and figuratively die out over time. Their influence could be there, but the groups themselves... Uh, are are no longer. And then that's what happens when the, the continual splitting and the sectionalism. And that happened to Seventh-day Adventism. Um, people may not remember that all the tragedy that happened in the 90s at Waco with David Koresh. David Koresh was um, the leader of uh, a breakaway fundamentalist Seventh-day Adventist group. It was a group that believed that the Adventists of that in the modern era weren't following the true um, beliefs, and so founded another group um, and that was much more extreme and fundamentalist in their belief. And that that is what happens um, with the religious belief and then with the food, too. So we try um, making original Guadalajara-inspired tacos that way. We end up substituting ingredients. We end up changing the flavors. I don't know a single cook that has read the recipe and actually cooks it exactly as it's written. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so true. Food is dynamic in that way. So we're going to take a quick break and we will be back with more Underground History. And you're back. 
You're listening to Underground History. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, speaking with Christina Ward about holy food. And I want to talk a little bit more about some of the groups that do um, come up in the cookbooks that have or I've got cookbooks on the brain in your new book (laughs) um, that have Oregon connections. Um, Thanks to the Netflix documentary, Wild Wild Country. Most folks are now familiar with Rajneesh Puram, which was located up in north central Oregon. And they had small satellite groups all all over Oregon, including I I believe I heard it. uh, There was a uh, restaurant in Ashland at one point. But we also have a Heaven's Gate connection. Um, The group was basically born in a campground in southern Oregon along the Rogue River. And these two examples can kind of offer some interesting discussion points uh, for the ways in which food is an active participant in forging or forcing these agendas. So in one Heaven's Gate, which, you know, I think would all would agree is a high control group, food was used to um, internally coerce or manipulate the participants. But on the other hand, the Rajneesh Puram, the food was literally weaponized as a way to exert this um, external control and to promote their agenda. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to, to those kind of roles that food plays. Absolutely. So the interesting thing with Rajneesh Puram to me is when the they started at the Antelope Ranch, when they began, they actually had essentially a, a CSA, a proto-CSA, and they were doing market farming, and they were supplying restaurants both in Ashland and in Portland um, with fresh vegetables. And it didn't start to become so antagonistic until the group did what something actually that Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Saints did by moving a large group of people to a one concentrated geographic area, they could um, gain political control over that town. That happened in Kirtland, Ohio with the Mormons, and they literally got burned out. And in modern day with Rajneesh Purim, there became that legal tension. And um, there was uh, essentially a pitched battle between the long-term residents and the incoming residents, which, again, we see this everywhere in all modern neighborhoods about who is a member of the community, who isn't, uh, what's gentrification, what isn't, who has say and the right to say what goes on in a community. Well, of course, the terrible outcome with the Rajneesh Purim is that one of the, the sub-leaders, Sheila Ma, decided to turn to violence, to turn to essentially poisoning and introduce salmonella to restaurants, to salad bars throughout the that region where the um, the commune was and the, all the surrounding restaurants in the area in an effort to eliminate the opposition, their political opposition. That is one extreme example of using food to control people. Heaven's Gate, on the other hand, um, they were really just interested in themselves. And they looked at that food as control as a way to purify their bodies, as a way to purify themselves to get ready for Um, the coming Space Brothers. A lot of the differentiation between how groups are using food to either control themselves or to control others is based on, again, what they're believing. 
Yeah. No, it's so interesting. And I, you know, there also is like some intermittent fasting and like some of those things that we hear today coming up in these, these different examples in the book too. So I, yeah, I, you know, you don't think about food can be such like an everyday mundane item and you don't are not like just thing you do every day. You don't um, really think about all the ways in which it's political and it's cultural and all the things that you're, you know, the way the choices you're making really are referencing a lot of these these early histories. And I'd like to just add that if we think about it just at its most basic level, like you're talking about, food can be just so mundane. We mindlessly snack all the time. But if we think about sharing a meal with someone or even going to a restaurant, that is a an act of trust. Mm-hmm. We're committing that trust in that other person that they're not going to poison us, <laughs> that they're not going to essentially serve us something that is like distasteful or disgusting. And within that bounds of trust relationship, a lot of these groups start their recruitment. Um, that's why Hare Krishna's a lot of groups offer that free meal because to get the free meal, you might have to listen to what these groups believe. But at the same time, that sharing of a meal creates the bond and also starts creating a tribal affiliation. We start to recognize ourselves as we are the vegetarian people, the vegan people, or, you know, we're the people who eat bean pies. And the food then becomes almost a marker of the cultural acceptance and membership within a group. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange, where we explore little-known aspects of our history in this region and beyond. You can find us online at jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today I'm speaking with author Christina Ward about the surprising influences of what we eat. And, you know, you mentioned how there's a level of trust in there. You know, there's also a performative level. People are showing off their resources or, you know, their skills. But I wanted to talk a little bit about one of your other books, Preservation, which is a a staple in my house because um, I can quite a bit. And in this day and age of so many different canning groups online and whatever, there are some really sketchy recipes. So I often turn to yours to be like, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. Um, But it also made you, you know, this background made you such a great person to not only kind of do this this research and kind of look through these recipes, but you've also modernized them so that they can be made and enjoyed or sampled today. And I think that that's been such a a great thing. There's 75 plus recipes in this book. I mentioned that. And I think I found like 15 or 20 that I I definitely really want to try. But do you want to speak a little bit to how you chose which recipes? You know, you definitely took a respectful... um, it would have been easy to kind of go for the really quirky or the weird recipes, but you really chose ones that, um, you know, seem like they could be good and they're, um, you know, they're maybe representative of some of the different ideas or, or, or like influences of these different groups. You want to speak a little bit to that? Absolutely. Well, thank you for the kind words. And yes, please double check um, with the Center for Home Food Preservation before you start pulling recipes online. <laughs> There's my safety announcement as the master food preserver for Wisconsin. Yeah, dry <laughs> canning like of low acid foods has like really all of a sudden it's everywhere and it's like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. But, uh, 
But uh, from what what we're talking about with the recipes, there was a lot of thought put into it. One, is, as you pointed out, to make things that were going to be re- uh, relevant to modern eaters, um, to show that influence. But I also wanted to go, like we were talking about earlier, about the nuance, about even that groups that had the most outrageous, outlandish beliefs could still make very delicious food. Groups that were high control and took their very illogical ideas to the logical, terrible outcome um, could still be capable of creating food that could be enjoyed today. And I think that I wanted to, I I know I wanted to include those recipes to, again, add that level of nuance. So it's one thing to read about a group and to think about it, but if you cooked one of their recipes, that'll give you just a really deeper understanding of what they were about. Yeah. And one of the things in there that I was like, oh, my gosh, I should ask her is I I saw a recipe that involved carob. And I remember tons of carob back in the day. But what happened to carob? You never see it anymore or hear about it anymore. Isn't that funny? Um, If you grew up in the 60s and 70s and and had any exposure to kind of quote-unquote health food, you ate carob. Even until the Little Debbie's brand, which was, again, affiliated with the Seventh-day Adventists, until they sold that brand, I think it was in the early 80s or mid-80s, they used carob. It was considered a chocolate substitute, and it could maybe lightly pass, but... (laughs) Um, yeah, not really. Um, but it also had that religious connotation. So it was used a lot by groups that cared about um, imbuing their food with a kind of a religious spiritual aspect because it's also known as St. John's bread. It is the theoretical miracle food that was uh, provided by God in the desert for John the Baptist during his wanderings. So the, using carob became symbolic in a number of different ways. Again, because chocolate is also considered a stimulant, and so many groups that avoid stimulants don't eat chocolate. Um, It has fallen out of favor as much as the strictness and adherence to some of these groups um, has fallen off. Even the Seventh-day Adventists, um, their membership, they're not doing as much outreach, so there's not many new Adventists coming into the group um, as conversions. And with health food, um, who really adopted carob, we're seeing newer versions and kind of quote-unquote cleaner versions of chocolate that can be produced in a way that satisfies the group's restrictions for specific groups or um, kind of satisfies the health requirements for specific groups. So carob's not needed as much. Yeah. And I I mean, it never would pass as chocolate, but I remember some things could be kind of good. I kind of miss it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I want to kind of, you know, start to wrap up, but I have a little gossip I want to ask you about. So I, you mentioned Bragg's a little bit in the book, and I recently saw there was a big online kerfuffle about Katy Perry bought the company and now it's like watered down and diluted. And for those of us who can, this has big, you know, implications if it's not 5% acid content or something. But do you, can you tell us an inside scoop on this gossip? Um, I don't have any inside scoops. I wish I did. So the bra- what I do know about the Bragg vinegar, and this is actually happening to many vinegars, is that they're being diluted. And it's kind of a shrinkflation. Um, and so as canners, yes, definitely watch your acidity percentage on any of the vinegars you're buying. Um, what I have seen from Bragg is 
where they've gone um, and embraced more of the mainstream market. Now you're seeing the Bragg branded individual probiotic, like uh, essentially like squashes, like vinegar drinks that are water. Those are watered down vinegar drinks and they have flavor additives and probiotic additives. And they're directly targeting this kind of health conscious market, the new wellness cult, we can safely say. (laughs) Um, yeah, I actually like those drinks. There's some good ones with ginger and stuff. <laughs> yeah, and so and that's actually a really good example of how something is created for a very specific consumer for a very specific reason, and then it becomes accepted and adopted by mainstream consumers, and then the product itself starts to modify a bit more to you know gain more consumers. Yeah, yeah. It's the American way. It is, it is. And oh my gosh, this has been so much fun. Uh, This wraps up this round of Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. I learned so much and I definitely look forward to trying some of these recipes and listeners out there, do yourself a favor and pick up a copy at the book or of this new book, Holy Food. And where's the best place to do that, Christina? Um, the book is distributed worldwide through fine um, internet retailers as well as your local bookshop. If they're not stocking it, they can definitely order it in for you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Underground History. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose. You can find us online at IJPR.org or you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today's JX. Before we get out of here today, we have the time to remind you that, like many nonprofit organizations, JPR is seeking support, reaching out for cash donations before the year is out. If you itemize your taxes, here's a chance to get another charitable deduction in before 2023 comes to an end. We get support from more corners of our community, and you get the satisfaction of knowing that you play a part in keeping public radio on the air in Southern Oregon and Northern California. Just go online to ijpr.org support to put in a donation. Thank you for whatever you're able to do, and thanks for listening today. Our website is jeffexchange.org. Our senior producer is Angela Decker of JPR News. Our assistant producer is Charlie Zimmerman. Our other student engineer is Zach Beagle. Our music is composed by Maxwell and Terry Longshore. I'm Jeffrey Riley. Have a great day.